Welcome to this week's episode, Podlers. Once again, I'm delighted to be joined by one of the UK's media heavyweights. Rob Atkinson is one of the best-known figures in the UK advertising sales industry and is another executive with an incredibly broad background and experience across several sectors. He started out in print and spent 12 years at the Mail on Sunday, ultimately becoming Group Commercial Director at Ireland on Sunday. He then switched to the outdoor, out-of-home poster business, rising to become COO of Clear Channel Outdoor in the UK and then CEO of Adshow Australia. Not content with mastering print and outdoor, he then transitioned to the CEO role at Australian Radio Network and added radio to his list of media. Ultimately, he found it impossible to be separated from his beloved West Bromwich Albion football team and returned to the UK. He is now advising a number of media and tech companies across out-of-home audio, specifically podcasting, and video transcription. So we have a lot of ground to cover and experience to tap into. Hi Rob, welcome to the pod. Oh, thank you for inviting me. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. I noticed the name of your consulting company is Dragonglass. Is that, by any chance, a Game of Thrones reference? It certainly is. I worked on the basis that Dragonglass, it, well, it can cut through anything. So I thought, what more appropriate name could I get for a consultancy, particularly in the current, uh, current situation? So that, that was the reason for the name. So that leads me to ask, if you were a Game of Thrones character, which one would you be? I'd have to be one of the Targaryens, I think. I see, I, as a, it, I see you as a bit of a Jamie Lannister, to be honest. Well, I could, could quite fancy that. I don't like the idea of just one hand, though. Maybe, maybe a Jamie Lannister. Yeah, I'll take that. I've always aspired to being, I suppose, Ned Stark because of the, the voiceover work that you get. Oh, that's true. Oh, too. See, <laughs> see what you can do. But I suppose I'm probably a bit more of a Jon Snow. Better that than an orc. Yes. <laughs> yes. Well, um, certainly a name yeah. character would be good. It would be great to learn a little bit more about how you got into this business. You were a print man to start off with. Certainly was. I answered a classified ad in The Guardian, got a job in a business called uh, New Point Publishing, which was content for students. So that was my first role. And then at timing, a friend of mine introduced me into national newspapers, which at the time carried a lot of currency. They still had very high circulations and readerships and they were incredibly influential and I joined the Express for a short period enjoyed that and then got headhunted to what is called the Academy of Publishing which is um, the uh, which is associated newspapers where I worked for the Mail on Sunday for around 12 or 13 years rising to head of commercial trading. Was there a, a lot of competition with the Daily Mail sales team? Very much so. Yeah. I mean, it was it was a business full of big personalities, quite aggressive, a bit of a dog eat dog culture. If you enjoyed that culture at the time, fantastic place to work. But there was competition between the daily and the Sunday, although it's very healthy competition. We would come together and be collaborative where we needed to be. But in the same time, we were also quite, quite competitive. And then there came a point where you moved to another country uh, for, the yes. first, for the first yeah. time. I yeah. know it's not that far over in Ireland, but still, it, it's, a, it's a change, right? Actually, it was a much bigger change than I anticipated. What it taught me very quickly was you've got to be culturally aware from the get-go. 
because although they speak the same language, culturally they're very different, clearly very passionate about their sport, about comedy, about their history, about socialising. So I was quite lucky in that I liked all of those. Um, Doesn't sound like a but... major cultural shift for you. <laughs> no, you've basically, me, you've basically mentioned your life. <laughs> oh, that's very true. But my boss at the time, who was uh, the CEO of the, the newspaper that I worked for, came out with a great piece of guidance, which actually still holds true today. This when is Ireland, me, Ireland on Sunday. Ireland on Sunday, where he said to me, it's really important not to come over with preconceived ideas. He said, because the, the mind is like a parachute. It works much better when it's open. <laughs> and, and it was so true. I, I learned the phrase very early on, be a learn-it-all, not a know-it-all. And I found that as long as you can gain people's trust there, then you're their friend, friend and their colleague forever. And then when you talk about learning, you're, you're one of these people, I suppose I fall a little bit into this category as well, who've exposed yourself to different challenges. So you moved out of print into what, I used, to, what I used to call posters. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I'm sure you'll tell me it's called out of home. Absolutely. Yes, I did. And I think that the biggest move there was, the biggest change was suddenly working for a, a truly global organisation in Clear Channel, where you, you learn the particular idiosyncrasies that go with, with a business um, and a culture uh, like that. So it wasn't just about learning a new medium and learning a new way of, of actually presenting that medium, but it was also about understanding how uh, an American organisation actually runs and what's important to them. I mean, that's fascinating the first two or three years, just understanding everything from the way that they, they value the business from an earnings potential, how important reputation is, what the growth potential of the business was, the importance of stability and corporate governance. So uh, for, for me, it was a huge learning curve, but, but one that was really interesting and, and paved the way for everything I've done in the future. Did you find that the skills that you had in selling or being a, a salesperson in national newspapers, those skills translated very easily into selling outdoor? Or did you find that there were things that you brought that were really new and innovative for the team and, and vice versa that you suddenly discovered a new way of selling? I moved from a business that was content rich, which very much sold itself on its content in newspapers to one where it was a blank canvas. Literally. You're basically selling a lot. You really are. You're selling a blank canvas in a specific location. So the location or the, the scale of, uh, of a group of locations and therefore an audience that goes past that location are what actually sells as an outdoor campaign. So I had to learn very quickly that, you know, we didn't have content to fall back on. But the biggest thing of all was relationships. Um, what I found in newspapers, it was about building strong, deep relationships with people. And that held me in very good stead when I moved into outdoor. And then another change and another country, this time <laughs> Australia, which is arguably has its own historical hang-ups when it comes to the UK. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I like but... to go from the frying pan into the fire. <laughs> <laughs> so you have to learn your history there as well. At the time, Clear Channel had a joint venture with an Australian-owned business called APN in outdoor called AdShell, which was a great business in its own right, but it was ripe for growth in a market that was, um, that was growing very quickly. 
and really my brief was to to not just allow the boat to rise on on a high tide it was actually to grow market share and potentially acquire or get us to a point where in the future we could uh, divest from the business with a very healthy multiple what i learned very quickly was with a joint venture of course you know you've got multiple stakeholders who often are looking for different different things different priorities different timelines so it was literally like having two divorced parents at times I have to say they work together very well on the whole, you know, considering they were based 12,000 miles away. It must be a sort of a media market where people know each other and, you know, the size of the business means that people must have relationships that go back years and to make change may, may be a bit hard in that situation because I should imagine yeah, you, you get a bit of the old, well, this is how we've always done it and this is how we're going to do it. And that, and that, going back to preconceived ideas, that, that was very much how I thought it was going to be. And it couldn't have been further from the truth. Actually, they've got a fantastic mindset around trying things that are new. So what, what became apparent very quickly was Australia and New Zealand, the two markets I looked after, were seen as very much the test markets for Clear Channel internationally. So we were often the first to market with new technology with a new approach, with new products and new services. And, and others followed us, which was quite ironic given the size of the country, what population of 24 million. And then another shift, this time to radio. And so uh, yet another different way of doing things, back to content. And you got to emulate or, or finally get that sort of Mr. Chairman in the football club uh, <laughs> position of signing big, big name stars. That's right. I managed to uh, be part of the team that signed Christian O'Connell from um, Absolute coming over to Australia. The deal was already well well on the way, but I think it helped having a Brit in situ when Christian came over to take on the breakfast show in, in uh, Melbourne. And, uh, and he's absolutely thriving now. He's, um, he's number one. Uh, it's taken two years and it always was going to. My first piece of advice to him was be patient. It'll happen because he's incredibly talented, yeah. as you know. But it was just going to take time. He needed to be known. And it was a slow burn. But now he's absolutely firing on all cylinders. And the show sounds fantastic. And uh, the audience has now followed as, as I thought it would. You know, part of the role was, <clears throat> was keeping the train on the tracks and getting it to go faster. But just as importantly was to broaden out the business into other audio products. So podcasting, audio branding, having a look at their Alexa skills, building those out. So lots of different areas. So you're, you're back in the UK now and advising a number of uh, different companies. And it'd be interesting to get your perspective on the lockdown from, a, from seeing it in different, different ways. But um, you mentioned podcasting. And this is obviously a podcast, and I'm a, mm. I'm a massive fan of podcasting. Yeah. As a practitioner, I think I can use that term now, uh, <laughs> as, as well as a consumer. Has podcasting made radio look like rubbish podcasting? <laughs> uh, no, I don't think so. I think radio for me is all about content. And there's still some amazing presenters on radio, and there always will be. Uh, and lots of people like to have their content edited for them. And that might, and even their music edited, edited for them. They don't just want to rely on Spotify and other uh, streaming services. I see pod, podcasting is 
it's fantastic if you really want to go deep into a particular subject. And I think that the, the key really is uh, distribution. There are some great podcasts that don't really ever see the light of day, unfortunately, because you know they don't have the means to be distributed and they don't have the means to promote themselves. In terms of the lockdown, what are you observing about uh, the various companies that you advise and the different ways that they're approaching things? Because it's a, it's a challenge, right? Particularly... Yeah. If you don't have content, so in the out-of-home industry, for example, and you know less people yeah. traveling, so they've got less inventory, and there isn't anything that's inherently content-driven. I think, well, I think where outdoor has, um, has shown its true colors during the lockdown was its support of frontline workers. So some great creative to support the NHS in particular, but also other charities who've obviously lost um, important funding opportunities and also keeping people informed from a um, government messaging perspective. And we're starting to see as traffic counts return to some, some sort of normality, bar probably public transport, we're starting to see the money start to flow again back into out of home. And I think the businesses that I've worked with and why they've been successful, they've learned to communicate incredibly well, keep all of their staff fully informed about what's going on, be pragmatic, try and find that balance between realism but also keeping the team inspired and motivated and reassured where you can so i think that's been good you've got to also promote resilience because a lot of young people in particular often living at home either on their own and therefore they've been isolated or they've been living with a group of other people friends often who maybe have been furloughed and they haven't and they're having to work in that environment, which isn't very easy when you might have four of the people in the house not working. So that, that's been quite hard, the mental health aspect. And I think the businesses I've worked with have been really sensitive towards that and tried to help where they can and support where they can and offer support. I think um, everybody's looking at uh, their current premises and working out, is it too big? Should we be downsizing that? Should we be giving people more flexibility so that they can work from home more frequently. So if people start doing that, then that's going to be a big shift for the out-of-home industry, isn't it? Because Well, for some, the... for some it will. For others, it's going to be an advantage. So I look at one of the businesses I work with, Alight, and um, most of their panels are in suburbia. So they're in Tier 2, Tier 3 cities. So if people are going to take shorter journeys, but more frequently... That actually suits them and they're in a better position potentially as a result. So a bit like what, what I have found all the way through COVID is there are businesses where it's actually been a benefit to them and there's businesses clearly where it's going to be detrimental to them. I can't remember whether it was Minority Report or uh, iRobot, but it was one of those sci-fi movies where we all got given individual advertising messages on, on billboards yeah. as we walked past. Are we uh, on the cusp of that yet? We've had that for a long time. I mean, a classic example, a good example from many years ago was, um, I think it was uh, when the Mini Cooper was introduced into America. In San Francisco, a couple of dealers put personal information that was you know, approved by the individual on a key fob that obviously uh, started the car. And as they drove past a billboard, digital billboard, it gave them information which was relevant to, to that particular person. So some people actually welcome that personal interaction and some people don't because they don't want their face, their name, anything about them, 
even their number plate. We did a campaign where we picked out people's number plates and then we fed them information about what's the best oil for their car because in the blink of an eye, we could work out what car they got, what age that car was, and we'd therefore know what oil they, we should, they should be using. Now, you'd say that's actually quite useful, I would have thought, but a lot of people, there was a big backlash and people didn't like it. So I think the technology is definitely there. It's just, it's people's willingness to engage that's probably the, um, the challenge and the hurdle at the moment. And then just coming back onto radio, I noticed that the Times have now launched a radio channel, which seems a bit strange. I mean, here's a brand that's 250 years old or however long it is. Enormous heritage. Understandably, they want to spread that brand out. But going back to my point that um, radio is just now old fashioned podcasting. (laughs) Does it make sense to be launching a radio station at this time? Well, I think um, I couldn't pick a better time to launch a radio station that's newsworthy. Have a look at News Talk and even Talk Sport. You know, a lot of the um, stations that are around where their content is around talk are actually doing exceptionally well from a uh, listener perspective. And with COVID at the moment and people wanting to stay up to speed with what's happening and radio is a great source of information and news content. So, and with a heritage, as you say, as as good as the as the times why not take it onto an audio platform but is there, is the money there a new audience but um, i the... think it is yeah yeah i mean they've already got off to a pretty good start they're getting sponsorship of um some of the, quite a few of the segments of their show i think there's quite a lot of interest in in um, how it's going to play out clearly they've got access to world-class journalism and they've got the support of all the other stations to obviously promote the brand uh, as well as promoting it through the printed word so I think, I think it's quite a smart, clever move, but time will tell how successful it's going to be. Usually about this time of the show that I ask people for their lockdown book, uh, t- <laughs> TV show or box set, film and record, which one of those would, uh, would be your all-time faves that if it was just you on your own yeah. would, uh, would sustain you through? a lockdown situation should you find yourself in in such a thing i would say in terms of a series i'd go netflix and i'd go money heist fantastic really enjoyed it very gripping film i would always say that you can't beat the shawshank redemption i've watched it probably eight or nine times yeah so shawshank redemption would be my go-to movie and go-to book yeah well i've actually i've been reading a couple of books on um on Steve Jobs recently, I was reading the, his autobiography, which actually was a fascinating read because it's taking you back in time and just getting a full understanding of how, you know, how not only he built Apple, but also Pixar, which many people forget. And record, whether it's an album or a song. Imagine Dragons and the Killers are my two favourite bands, along with David Bowie. Well, Rob, thank you so much for joining us on the pod. And I look forward to um, receiving some very targeted advertising as I drive along in my car, telling me (laughs) (laughs) that I need to buy a new one. Thanks very much, Danny. Pleasure to be with you.